Welcome to Line Noise, a podcast about electronic music. I'm Philip Sherburn. And I'm Ben Cardew. And today we are joined uh, via Skype by uh, one of the most intriguing producers, I think, of modern house, techno, jazz, uh, Jamal Moss, a.k.a. Hieroglyphic Being. We're going to be talking with Jamal today about his new album, The Discos of Imhotep, which is out soon on Technicolor, a sublabel of uh, Ninja Tune, in which he goes deep into the healing power of house music. Uh, he's going to be talking with us today about binaural beats, about polyrhythms, uh, and, and healing frequencies. So we've got Jamal on Skype right now. And the first question we asked um, was about the name of the album, The Discos of Imhotep. Where did that come from? Well, everybody has their um, folklore or like uh, historical, historical perspective about when it comes to ancient Egypt and uh, Imhotep. And for me, in my background and my culture where I come from, we see Imhotep as a healer, like one of the world's first physicians. You know, he was about trying to healing, you know, his environment that he was um, in. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things when you go to a club and you hear music and music is being played, it's supposed to be a healing force as well. Right. So it's kind of, it goes hand in hand. And it's like that's kind of lost in club culture this day and age that more people go to the dance floor to gripe about the ills of the world instead of come there to heal from the, Ill, the ills of the world. So this is something you reference in, on the album, right? You talk about it being um, sound healing. And you use binaural beats. How, did, how does that work exactly? What, what are binaural beats and how do they work within the music? Okay, that term is basically just a little term for polyrhythmic. Right. You're going to have like different levels. You can be, you know, mid-range, it can be low-end, or it can be high-end forms of percussion, but it can be subtle. But there's certain things you can do in the rhythmic pattern that can put people into a healing trance or a conducive state where they can feel calm and peace from... Um, stress for external forces outside the body that sometimes goes internally and affects the person's mood or behavior. Just give you a prime example when you know when when uh, Native American men want to do the rain dance or they want to do like a healing dance, you know what I'm saying, for medicinal pur purposes regarding their tribe. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Certain things when uh, tribes in Africa when they do uh, a performance, you know, or dance. You know, around the beat or the drum. You know what I'm saying? It's like in different cultures you have different forms of like. Um, uh, rhythmic patterns, you know, that can like, you know, heal, you know, a community or a tribe or a culture. I mean, you know, in Japanese culture, they have the big drum they use as well, you know, but it's it's, it's in a different, um, it, I would say it's just in a different, you know, binaural uh, frequency that's conducive to their environment. Hopefully with this album, we can try to like set uh, a precedent for other artists to try to do the same thing as well with their music, not just be about this style of music, but actually about to the roots of healing the people who come to these uh, outlets to hear the music, you know, to feel better in life, to be feel healthy in life, to feel uplifted, you know, spiritually aware. The shift in emphasis to um, to music that facilitates healing is that a new thing for you? Because uh, I'm you talked about polyrhythms, and I think a lot of the music that you've made over the years has been really deeply, kind of complexly polyrhythmic. But see, that's the whole thing. I did a lot of research into like the certain designs and rhythms that I did. And a lot of people would say some of the stuff I do is not like no other or just like programmed a certain way. People always ask me that. So I found out through some, uh, some testing and some research, I found out the type of beats and rhythms I do come from a, a tribe in Senegal of African descent. So it can be different for somebody that's of Asian, 
you know, European or whatever, from whatever their cultural background from, is how they decide to use their tribal rhythms to communicate to the world the best way they can through machines, whatever devices they use. What kind of research did you do? How did you trace that back to, to Senegal? And, and do, you have a, do you have links to Senegal yourself? Well, I did a lot of some DNA research and then going through some historical records, you know, talking to um, older family members, you know, and got documentation from other family members that passed away. You know, so it's just like you learn a lot about yourself when you know about your culture. <clears throat> as part of the healing process, when you know thyself, when you, th- you know thyself, you can heal thyself, and in turn, you can do that for others. So for me, it was a process of learning more about why I made the things the way I did, or the, my certain approach, especially without any type of formal training or any type of like real um, specialized, you know, focus in doing a certain type of style or, or, or genre. I can sometimes go off deeply into like really, you know, polyrhythmic stuff that's so strange and mundane. I can't really put it out on um, a format for people to hear because it's, it's too spaced out. So if you ever heard stuff from in the past, it probably sounds weird or mundane or spaced out. I have stuff that's way more bugged out than that. that I just kind of keep to myself. Uh, you should you should let us hear it. You know, maybe in a couple of years when I think certain things and uh, when people are ready, let's put it that way. I'm not even ready. And I made this stuff. So I figured maybe in a couple of years, people will be ready to be able to, you know, sonically digest it. But to go back to the question you was asking, I mean, people do it every day, form of like a sound healing. You know, when you go to yoga, they play, you know, the the ambient music in the background or, you know, in certain places, environments you'll go to. Like, um, I mean, a lot of places, you know, you go to yoga or you do. uh, What's the other one I was thinking of? They got like uh, spas now when you go to, you know, you go to meditate you know, retreats and stuff like that. So it's not that that different from what I'm trying to do with this album. I just have like a lot of like uh, aesthetics going on sonically as well as uh, rhythmically. So how how would it work? I mean, do you need to listen to the album really loudly um, to get the effect of these rhythms? Or can you listen to it through headphones? Can you have it in the background? Or do you need to concentrate? It's kind of one of those things that you just have to be in, in the right mind frame to receive. Everything you have in your environment around you is set up for you to receive, either by your senses, you know what I'm saying, your sight, taste, smell, and your hearing. And when you open up to those certain things, it will open you up to other possibilities. It opens up a doorway, a pathway to a process to get your body, you know, I guess we just say um, your body's vibrations and harmonies right with each other to be in tune. That's the best way I can put it because I have a lot of, I have like a lot of triggered melodies that, that in a way sound similar and repetitive, but they're not. They actually change very subtly and um, very, um, what's the word for it? Um, Meticulously. Sorry, I got, I like a... uh, Meticulously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way that it's done and it it actually helps a person go on a transducive state. So how does it work? Just because it's such a small change that your brain is kind of expecting to hear the same thing and it's slightly shocked by the the small change there is? Okay, it's kind of like... it's kind of like you go out, you go out, you step out the house, you hear the birds, you hear the trees, you like, you hear cars come past, you hear all types of like external concrete, you know what I'm saying, noise in the environment and you have nature in the background. Then you have the motions and the sounds of your movement as you walking through that environment. It depends on, on when you're going through that environment through that day sonically, because everything around you is, is set up sonically for you to receive and for you to interpret to how to guide and navigate yourself through the course of the day. So when you're walking down the street, what noises or what tones resonate with you to trigger you into a certain type of mode, either it be 
business-minded, health-minded, love-minded, spiritually-minded, you know, I don't know, being an asshole-minded individual. Certain things and sounds can trigger you off in a certain way. So for some people, they feel like they need to be more in a rural environment because they can't stand the urban soundscape because it's disruptive to their system. You know, it's like it it blocks out intuitive things for them to be able to adapt, you know, in in a proper aligning environment for them to feel whole or healing. Some people love living in the concrete jungle. You know what I'm saying? They love the environment of a big bustling city and concrete and parks and shops and everything being artificial. But if you look at certain studies, they really they tell you people who live in more quiet environments, there's more nature, you know, uh, with more, more natural surroundings, live longer than people who live in stressful, concrete, urban environments. And it's usually conducive to the sonics that's going on in your environment. In terms of music as, as a sort of healing power, is that something you've experienced yourself in, in, yes. in your life? I mean, how could you tell us about that? How, how music has kind of helped you physically? Well, let's put it this way. When you, when you think about a time of period when I was coming up and a lot of other people, especially where I came from, a lot of music that you heard was very nourishing to the mind as well as the soul. You know, that's why you had soul music or you had like funk or you had gospel or you had jazz. It always somehow gave some type of spiritual connection and message to, you know, a sonic delivery. So when you say something like that, it's kind of like I grew up with that already in my environment. But now as generations go by, the music and the quality and the caliber, even song structure, even instrumentals do not have that natural energy. It's all very artificial. And then in turn, when people are exposed to an artificial type of environment, it makes them not in order with themselves. So when you go to clubs now, you don't hear anything that's very spiritual and uplifting. It's the basic, the kicks, the four fours, the hi-hats, maybe some weird string, and then that's about it. And then they fist pump it to the next track and then to the next one. And if they do use some words, it's something mundane, archaic, stupid, silly, sexual, sexist, demeaning, whatever it is that's like, you know, repetitive over and over again. And those are the vibe vibrations people pick up in here and it gets into their fiber. So, you know, if you're hearing a tune that's saying tits, ads, and pussy, then what type of environment does it create with, you know, males with testosterone, you know, inside a club and they may see women dancing and stuff, what type of environment that causes for the person who can't control themselves because of stuff they've been repetitively being hearing heard over and over again in an environment where they think it's being accepted so it leads to other things that's not of that's not uh positively conducive to a certain environment you see what i'm saying it's kind of like when, when people are in the clubs and women feel not safe they feel safe for a re- they don't feel not safe for a reason and then you have men who come to the club as in an alpha male type state and you hear songs as demeaning or degrading to other people or especially women and then you know women dance because that's how the culture set up now to be programmed to, you know, disrespect yourself and your body to this music that degrades you. And then you have men there being pariahs on you and disrespect you because of that environment. You see how you see what I'm trying to go with how what music can do to people and set up certain scenarios is very negative for a culture or people or an environment or a nightlife. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I was wondering specifically, uh, like you came up. I see you as being kind of a bridge to an earlier generation of Chicago house. I mean, you came up under like Steve Poindexter and Adonis. And my sense is you're kind of carrying on a tradition of like experimental and kind of liberation oriented house music and and the values that that were present in early Chicago that have kind of fallen away over the years as the music has become more commercialized. 
It's not necessarily that it's, it's falling away, but it's going back to what I was saying before about environments. Luckily, me, because of what I came up in, because of the gospel, jazz, and the soul influences, and then when I came into house music culture, that helped me and healed me. Because me growing up in those type of those those tumultuous years, you had street music or hip hop or gangster rap that was coming up, and it caused a whole different type of a disharmony because of the type of uh, the sonics it was putting out, type energy it was putting out. House music saved me to go a different direction. It prevented me from being a thug, a game banger, a killer, a murderer, you know what I'm saying, or a rapist, or a drug dealer. You see what I'm saying? Because house music gave off a different vibration, different harmony. It was, it was more of a global aspect. It was something that it, it puts you more on a world straight stage, you know, when it comes to connecting with the human experience and not just being a hood experience through other type of music people was exposed to. Me, I went through... I would say the human experience, human global connection through house music. So it was healing. It was a family. It was spiritual. You know, people came together. There was not a time when you had, you could walk into a place and not feel threatened. You know, everybody was respected. If you was gay, straight, white, black, male, female, whatever, everybody was together in unison. And it was very healthy and healing. So when you came up with a group of people in that type of environment, it's instilled in you to want to be able to, to, um, to share that and express that with other people to give them, or hopefully convey to them the same, same experience that you had when you were younger and try to convey it to them through what you do, if that makes any sense. I'm quite interested. I wanted to ask, um, you've talked about, you know, going into a club and the music being very uninspiring and the music just using sort of certain tones um, and very limited lyrical output. Do you feel that a lot of what passes for house music, what passes for dance music today isn't good enough isn't doing what it should be no it's not good enough i mean there's a lot of stuff i put out that's not good enough that should have never made it to the day of light but you know you get caught up in the industry and economics and if you want to survive you gotta do what you gotta do i just feel like now we're at a time and age as artists if you because i don't really see myself a musician i just see people who create this it's a very um serious point in history right now for us to change everything and put positive creations into the world because it's so much negative and stagnant stuff been going on for so long it's gotten society de-evolved to a certain point that's very scary that a lot of things are being allowed in this culture and in this world you know because of of, of the, the de-evolution of human beings in the past 20 years and i seriously believe it's through the the, the degradation of um of art uh literature you know uh music you know what I'm saying? Like sculptures, everything. Everything is like somehow been displaced and like been distorted in a certain way. It's got the world in a bad, a bad way. So not just in actually people who actually create sound. It should be across the board in literature, visual, medium, everything to try to use their art and craft to bring the world together and heal best way possible. I wanted to ask as well about the new album. Um, a lot of the songs sound um, like they've been edited from far longer pieces. Is that correct? Is that what happened? I mean, how did you compose these pieces? And was it different from other records that you've done? I mean, in a sense, it was uh, these part, it's probably the first album where I had to like learn how to convey a sonic story in a shorter period of time. Because I'm used to doing stuff that's in like an eight, ten minute format or even longer. So I just learned to say what I have to say. As you can tell, I could talk and keep on going. And I have to learn how to edit myself down to get the message across and to, you know, and, and be specific with it. So that was the whole thing about this project to shorten everything down and get to the point, get to the meat of it 
you know, get, keep the energy going and not let it uh, dis dissipate. So that was the whole thing with this project of trying to do stuff that was three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. That was something new to me to try to squeeze in all this stuff and arrange it right where it could tell a certain story or message sonically. This album is coming out on Ninja Tune, well, one of their labels, um, and it's got a lot of shorter pieces. Do you want... Do you want your music to be more accessible? Do you want it to reach a far wider audience? Or is that not something you bother about? I mean, it's getting to a point now I want to reach a, a wider audience and just try to spread a positive message. So that's part of me. I want to get back in and still be connected to the global human culture. You know what I'm saying? The world culture. You know what I'm saying? And not be stuck in a hood mentality. You know, because like I said, I was saved through house music because it had that type of, you know, uh, vibration and harmony, you know, resonance sonically with me. So it goes hand in hand or what I'm trying to do now, you know, with this project. So I have no problem if it can reach somebody, you know, in India, if it reach somebody in Alaska, if it can meet somebody in Russia or South America and it can like set off a tone, a resonance to make the, the spark an idea of something positive to contribute to humanity. Why not? I know it's probably reaching deep, you know, what I'm saying off of tunes, but, you know, you have to you, you have to speak out to the universe, the cosmos and put it into existence and then see where it might inspire someone else to take my, I don't know, dopey concept or laughable concept or maybe a very intuitive concept and take it to the next level to get it where it needs to be. And who do you think, I mean, in terms of modern producers, um, who do you think is, is doing worthwhile things, doing things that we should be listening to? Honestly, the people who came before us, they already had laid the blueprint. So I just feel like there are people still around who made music 50 years ago you can go out and like invest, you know what I'm saying, in like the archives of other, you know, music that came out, you know, before 20 years ago. Because a lot of people need a, a education, a re-education, you know, on this stuff. Some people's musical knowledge only goes back to like 20 years tops and nothing before that. And it stagnates you. It doesn't give you growth. I feel all the jazz greats, all the like spiritual jazz stuff, the people who was doing industrial music. You know, the people who's doing art noise stuff, the ambient stuff, the Brian Enos, the Kate Bushes, you know, the Giant Cage, the Sun Ra's, they were already doing that. I mean, that's where it needs to go back to, because everything we're doing now, we're just trying to repeat the stuff that came before us, but with our own egos. That's a good opportunity to ask you about um, We Are Not The First, which is the album that you did last year uh, as Hieroglyphic being in the G2 Ensemble with Greg Fox, a powerhouse drummer from Liturgy, um, former uh, members of the Sun Ra Orchestra and some other people. I just wanted to ask you kind of what that process of making that record was like, because that, that was a big collaborative effort. It was quite different from, from a lot of your records, uh, less beat-oriented, more sort of freeform. Uh, what made you want to work in, in an ensemble context like that? It's not what made me want to work into that. It was just kind of something that just kind of fell or gravitated my way, you know, through other people who had an idea or a concept that felt like they want to give it a chance and see what happens if they can get me to do what I do with machines, with human beings. So it was just, you know, experiment in the, pro you know, in the making. They brought me out, you know, and I met, these, met the wonderful people who was part of this project, and we decided to jam out. I had some concepts and ideas, and I had stems, and some pre-laid uh, arrangements and melodies, and then we just went for it. It was just kind of one of those things of how people could come to a, um, a dinner party and just have a conversation. You know, instead of having a conversation, you know what I'm saying, with, uh, with verbal words, we're doing it just sonically through instruments. And that's all it was. It was just basically chitter-chatter, you know what I'm saying, some jokes and notes, you know what I'm saying, some, uh, some inspirational, you know what I'm saying, like, you know, ideas thrown across each other, but just done sonically. The tracks on the album, was there a lot of um, 
kind of post processing post processing or editing done to them or was it really was that how the jams happened uh no actually that album that's out now it's like uh it's kind of like the third yeah it's like a third take of it so like the original original stuff hasn't came out i don't think it ever come out like it basically they we worked on it and then like they sat on it for a while and decided they wanted certain things done and had to go back in with engineer and then like mix some stuff down so there's a lot of tracks that do not sound like the original takes. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic record. I mean, the fact that like you were working with Greg Fox, I think is so cool, just because he's he's such an amazing drummer and yes, he is. musician. Do you prefer working with a group or working by yourself in general? Um, I just try to rise to occasion with any opportunities put before me. So it's just like if I'm able to work with other people, I'm 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 happy with it. If I'm able to work solo on a project, I'm happy with it. I just got to take every opportunity as a chance of doing something better with my life. In one of the um, interviews you gave around We Are Not The First, you you said that you're not a musician. And in fact, you called yourself um, an asshole with a drum machine who got lucky, which seems like a very um, modest way of of referring to what you you do what why do you not consider yourself a musician because i think it's a disrespect and a disservice to people and uh who uh who go to school to uh, learn music theory or be trained pianists or to learn you know what i'm saying music theory and they go to these universities and their parents take out loans and do all this stuff to make a sacrifice to them only to have these people to go play chamber music or to go work with orchestras and right now a lot of those, those the industries you know like uh not as they're not doing as good economically as they used to like 20 years ago. So it's like, there's a lot of people make a lot of sacrifices to actually be to learn three or four instruments, to learn, to read music, you know, learn to like write sheet music. I can't do that stuff. I'm just a person that got, that's fortunate enough that, that thanks to technology, you can sequence and save your ideas. And then you can front to the world that you, you, you're a musical genius. And I think that's BS. I never want to do a disservice to somebody who, when I walk down the street, they got a guitar with a bucket trying to get some change so they can get like, you know, keep a roof over their head and like a one hot meal a day, you know, or see, I've seen like grandpas, Chinese grandpas with their like eight year old daughter with the viola, you know, in the subway, you know, playing for music so they can keep paying for her to go to music school or whatever they need to do. So she can be successful in life. You know, I think that's a disservice to them who's actually out there struggling, trying to do it. And then cats like me because of technology can sequence and save we can go on a road with our little iPads or laptops and our little digital machines and get paid a buttload of money for one hour that would take those people on the street, back, you know, working for change to play their music. You know, it might take them two months to get that. So, nah, I can't. I just can't do that. You know, at the same time, um, you're incredibly prolific. Um, I make the new album. I think it's your 35th solo album. Why? Why are you so prolific? And do you do you see that as as being a good thing? I, that's the weird thing about it is, it's like I, I'm like I'm so caught up into my own head. I don't think about these things until people bring them up. It's like you do what you do because you do it because you want to do it, not because it's outside influence that makes you want to do it. It's more therapeutic for me to do this. It's just in the process that people are able to hear some of the stuff I do and it. Got across other people and got across other people and got across other people because what's ironic about it, 25 years ago, what you see as prolific, people thought was bullshit. So, and yeah, so it it's all perception. You know what I'm saying? Like the stuff I'm doing now, 25 years from now, people might still think it's bullshit. And 100 years from now, they might think I was some type of like genius. It's all perception. You know, it goes, you just never know. I just feel like 
I don't see myself as prolific. I just feel like this is something that I feel comfortable with doing in life because it's honest, it's, it's honest work, it's honest living, and it's something I'm creating for myself and I can take pride in. And I'm not like sucking weird, like valuable resources from other people, you know what I'm saying, to cause stress on the environment that I in. I'm, I'm, I'm self-reliant and self-sufficient is the best way to put it. And I'm not taking away from anything else that's going to cause harm to anyone else or the, the world around me. That's how I look at it. Do you, uh, do you spend more time making your own music than listening to other people's music? Because like, I don't know how to phrase the question exactly, but I see you as being so much on your own wavelength. I don't imagine you just like sitting down and popping in somebody else's CD. I see you like constantly creating, like searching for that sound. And I guess maybe that your prolific nature is one of the things that, that makes me think that way. But I mean, Uh are you just kind of constantly creating? Yeah, I am. Like I'll, I'll wake up and make some stuff and then like go about my day. Then I go back and work on some other stuff and then go about my day. And there are some days I just won't do anything. Then there's days I will, I pop in, you know, vinyl and I got some like CDs of like, you know, obscure stuff. And I sit there and I just listen to other people's conversations sonically. You know, it is like in a way they're, they're the historical testament of their existence, you know, even though it was done 30 years ago or 40 years ago, it's still like a sonic, you know, diary, you know, it's kind of like what I do is a sonic diary, you know, of, of harmonizing or synthesizing or, you know, drum programming, you know, my, my, my sonic signature in life. So if somebody 40 years from now sat down um, and listened to, let's say, um, the new album, what do you think they, they would think of you? What do you think they would think who was Jamal Moss or who is? I honestly can't say because that that far off in the future and because there's so much stuff going on now coming out just in not just in this genre but other genres who is to say if my stuff will make it that far because you gotta realize there's a lot of tunes from 30 years ago that never made it this far into the, the consciousness of people now. You know, that's about you always got crate diggers, you know, and people and selectors who come out to educate people on stuff that was lost gems or rare finds, you know what I'm saying, or rare grooves and stuff like that. My stuff might just get lost in the mix among millions and millions of stuff that's out there. I just don't know. I can't predict that. You know, maybe somebody will find something, they'll sit on it and be like, whatever. For all we know, 20 years from now, it might be no music. It might be one of those things where silence is, you know what I'm saying, the tone of the day. I can't tell you. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Um, I hope it's not too personal. You mentioned last year and again in an interview that you had serious anxiety levels. Um, does that affect the way that you make music? And how did you get over that? Because I know you, you're a fairly prolific DJ these days. How, how did that affect you? Uh, my anxiety levels just comes from, like, that's survival mode. I've, I have, I've been on high anxiety alert ever since... You know, I was, you know, growing up from in my environment and then being homeless on the street. It puts you in a certain uh, heightened aware, uh, a, 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 a state and heightened, was that aware, a tongue tie right now. You're in a, 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 a heightened state of awareness constantly. So it's just like part of my anxieties is I'm always like, you know, on, on alert and like freaks me out. And sometimes I just have to find a way to like meditate and just calm down some. It's just kind of one of those things after you've seen people get shot and seen all types of crazy stuff and, you know, you've you been through some stressful things. It's just kind of hard to, like, just level out and just be chill. But I've learned to try to do it through certain things that help me remain calm 
and get through it. That's the best way I can explain it. I still get anxieties, but at least I get to the point now I'm very conscious when it's about to like occur and I try to keep it in check. And does music help with that? Presumably, um, it helps if I'm in the, if I'm. It helps me if I'm in the right environment where I can hear the right tunes. They can help me feel calm and feel whole. You know, it doesn't help me none if I got high anxiety alerts and I'm somehow walking to a room and they're playing like Gabber, right. happy hardcore. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. So it'll take it it'll take it somewhere else. Now, if I'm somewhere and they're playing like some smooth jazz or some Chardonnay or something, yeah, my anxiety levels just go to zero. <laughs> With the quickness. I mean, I wanted to ask about your, your DJing as well. You released a mix album um, called The Worst DJ Ever. Uh, yeah. A cassette. Could you could you tell us a story behind that briefly? I mean, it's self kind of self-explanatory. It ain't really too much to read into that. I don't see myself as a DJ either, but, you know, some people, I'll, I give a good party vibe. I just put it that way. Sometimes I can get in the zone, like if the pr- crowd is right, energy is right, to like deliver a certain type of... Uh, you know, musical selection on the turntables or the CDJs or whatever. But it's kind of one of those things that it just came about because you have people who practice their craft as an art of DJing, you know, eight hours a day, six hours a day for the last 10 years in their bedroom. Then they come out and the first thing they do, they look at me and be like, well, he's not using all the technical, you know, finesse he's supposed to use as a quote unquote DJ. And the funny thing is, I never claimed to be a DJ. So I kind of laugh when people just hate on me thinking I'm fronting to be one and never claim to be one and they're mad at me because they feel like they should be there showing off you know what I'm saying with their blending and transitions and holding eight measures or 16 measures on a record like oh look at me and that's that's not even about the music that's just your ego so it's kind of one of those things I'm kind of trolling the haters who are you know hating on what I did which I never claimed that I was in the first place so I was at a party somewhere and it was packed wall to wall everybody's having a great time and then some dude just kept haranguing me. And all of a sudden, I was just like looking at him like all crazy. And then like he was saying something to me. And I'm like, I can I hear you? And it's like 10,000 watts blaring. What's wrong with you? So he got a napkin, wrote down and just said, you're the worst DJ ever. And then I'll, and he just put it right on the turntable and then gave me the finger and then walked away. Next thing you know, I got a bottle thrown in my face. And then I just stopped the music. And I told everybody, I said, hey, I got a bottle thrown in my face. And somebody wrote a napkin and said I was the worst DJ ever. And you got to realize this is one person. Out of 800 people that was having a great time just being an asshole. So I just said, you know what? I'm about to troll the situation and decide to say, hey, I'm about to record. That party was recorded and we sold the cassette tape of the party where this person claimed I was the worst DJ ever. And then it sold out. That's it. <laughs> Take that, dude. <laughs> yeah. You're, I mean, you're, you have a real, like, as a DJ, you have a very freeform technique. Um, you know, you're known for kind of playing records out of sync, like letting them just run. Um, kind of letting things happen that wouldn't happen kind of in a planned way or, or uh, you know, in <coughs> traditional DJ way. Do you have kind of influences as to your particular style of DJing where you were the people that you came up watching play that kind of helped point you in that direction? Well, let's put it this way. I'm not going to mention no DJ's names because a lot of DJs ain't going to admit to that. But let's put it this way. I watched a lot of people, just the whole thing. It's like, it's complicated to say this term, but when people say a DJ, it's really disc jockey. And when you think of disc and jockey, what does the term jockey remind you of? Person on a horse, in a race, jockeying, right? So when you think of the way to gap along on a horse, and you got other horses and stuff coming along, and everything is trying to like, you know, somebody's trying to get in first place and win, that's what you think of when you basically playing two records or trying to get them to blend together. 
you basically you jockeying it. You riding the rhythm. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of times when you're doing that, some people can be on point and precise. You know what I'm saying? And then some people, it takes them a few seconds to gallop along and catch up and get it to match up the way it's supposed to. You know, in hip hop, they call it what? Beat juggling. You know what I'm saying? You know, and in some worlds, the haters just call it train wrecking. You know, however, wherever the perception is supposed to be. But a lot of times when you like at parties back in the day, when you heard a DJ trying at least to get those records to come together and finally do, that's part of like the 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 excitement of it because people are seeing this person trying, you know, even though they're not, you know, 100% best as, you know, some other, you know, well-known DJs, but people applaud them the fact that they got through their fear and had the courage to get out there and at least try. And that's what it is about a supportive environment where there's like good music being played that it's a family you see what i'm saying so it's like i've been fortunate enough that i've played when people hear me be off but finally get together or be on point it's like a family they understand you that you're going to make mistakes you're not going to be perfect all the time you're going to have some good times you're going to have some bad times you can sometimes you can just going to be on you know what i'm saying non-stop and then sometimes you're just going to be off you know that's kind of like the whole process of it, you know, when you convey and tell the stories of people's music, especially on vinyl, you know, sometimes it ain't perfect like that, you know, and that you give like a false perception in the world when you make it seem like everything is so perfect and precise. Like what some people do, you know, at some shows where they have their precise beat matching and their perfect blends and they're holding their transitions. They're just giving a false sense of entirement, you know what I'm saying, to the listener. Everything is not perfect that way. I think this even goes back a little bit to the idea of kind of polyrhythms and and healing frequencies. But to me, like I've always found perfectly synchronous, like computer synchronized DJ sets to be quite dull because essentially you're getting one BPM all night long and like the beats never change and everything is perfectly in sync. Whereas when I hear a DJ who's manually mixing things and the beat starts to slip a little bit out of sync and it doesn't necessarily have to train back. But even yeah. just you feel that tension and you feel the things kind of slipping and then, you know, he or she will kind of nudge it back into place and it catches up and, and it locks back in. And, and there's a real sense of satisfaction there. I mean, to me, those are the moments that are sometimes the most exciting about hearing a DJ play is when things are kind of beginning to fall out and your whole body kind of tenses up and then it and then it comes back into pl- in, into sync and you're like, ah. Oh, Yes, you know, and I don't know. To me, that's one of the best things about DJing. Well, that's the, well, technically speaking, that's just another term of problem solving. That's what you do in life. You have those same type of episodes in, 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 in everyday life when you go to work or if you're dealing with whatever it is in your personal life. It's the same thing for a, a disc jockey to do that. He's working, he's problem solving in real time in life, trying to solve a situation before it goes bad. That's how I look at it. It's just, it just kind of one of those things. That's how people convey a story or a mes- message. It's their form of sequencing. That's how I look at it. That's technically speaking, is 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 human automated sequencing when it comes down with the two, two turntables, you know, and then just trying to problem solve, you know, things out in life. And it just so happened the problems they're solving are the two records with the different types of music that's, that's speaking about you know, a story of someone's life. Joel, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, um, thank you for, uh, uh, yeah, hearing me, you know, you know, blabber for a minute. No, yeah. no, it's been fascinating. But I, I wanted to ask just one more thing before we go. Um, we'd like to play out with a, a clip of a, of a song from the new album. Okay. Um, what song should we play and why? <laughs> 
I would just say the the, the title track, uh, the Disco's Emotep. Why? Why that particular one? Because that's that's the that's the message I'm trying to get across about you know try to be in environments that are healing. You know what I'm saying? Try to like heal thyself. When you can heal thyself, you can heal the world. And I mean that's what the Disco's Emotep about is. Hopefully that when you go into the club, the Disco's. You're going to get that healing sound. That sound is going to help you, you know what I'm saying, get you to the next level, to ascend, to elevate, you know, to to get everybody to be in a very harmonious, you know, state of being, you know. No more disruption, you know, no more disharmony. You know, that's what that tune is about for me. That's, I mean, when you hear that melody, it's kind of one of those things. It's just like the theme song to the individual on a road to, like, you know, healing like self. was the discos of imhotep off of hieroglyphic beings amazing new album the discos of imhotep do please all buy it. it's a fantastic album you won't regret it at all so philip you uh wrote a piece um that was released just last week uh, about vinyl only labels i saw a lot of people talking about it um i'm interested why did you decide to write about this I think a lot of it comes down to my experience as a record buyer. Um, I mean, I've been buying records for forever, basically. Um, I have a pretty huge collection. I still spend kind of a silly amount of money on records. Um, and yeah, I mean, in recent years, I've, I've found myself increasingly fascinated by these labels that persist in only putting out vinyl because as a buyer um, and as somebody who's moved my record collection like across several national borders several times. Um, really, these days, I want digital. And there are sometimes there are things that I would like to have on vinyl just because I, I don't have any faith in the longevity of a digital collection. You know, I've, I've lost hard drives. Um, I've lost my music collection, digital music collection, several times. And so, like, if there's something I want to have 20 years down the line, I, I want to buy it on wax. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that, like, I just want it to DJ with now or to listen to for the next few years. And yeah, what, why can't I just buy that on, on Bandcamp? So, so sort of starting from that position, I, I got interested in these labels who are kind of staunchly anti-digital or at least staunchly, you know, they're only putting out their, their music on wax. I mean, that could be somebody like Perlon, um, you know, iconic Berlin minimal techno label who still only does digital, uh, still only does vinyl with the exception of some CDs for like compilations or albums, but they don't have, uh, they're not available on, on download purchasing sites. They're not available on Beatport. They're not available on streaming services, certainly. Um, and, and then now there's these days, there's kind of a, a crop of small, tiny underground labels like, um, Mood Hut out of Vancouver, BC, who's doing really interesting kind of left field house. Um, but again, they're only they're only putting out wax. Um, I mean, they're they're like 
dozen scores, hundreds of these labels. Um, go to Discos Paradiso here in, in Barcelona or go to any record store, you know, go to Fonica, go to Hardwax and flip through the racks and, and a, a vast proportion of that stuff is going to be vinyl only. And I just got really interested in kind of the motivations behind these people. Why, why, why do they do it like that? Why not, you know, why not also put out music digitally on Bandcamp eventually. You know, I understand not wanting to put your music on Beatport because, you know, for all manner of reasons, but why not also eventually put it up on Bandcamp? And some labels do, you know, some labels put it out on Wax and then eventually six months later, three months later, a year later, it goes on Bandcamp. But for some, they're holdouts. And so that's why where why I called it the holdouts. So, okay, why, why do they do it? Um, they're is a range of opinions. Um, some of like the, the most interesting and kind of informative source I had was, um, Stefan Mitterer from, uh, sex tags mania, which is a Norwegian left field house and techno and experimental music label. And for, for him, it comes down to a number of things. Part of it is, um, an issue of kind of craft. Um, he, he told me that like there are, a lot of things you learn about pressing music to vinyl. He he also works as an assistant ma- uh, mastering engineer. The day I spoke with him, he was just coming from dub plates and mastering the mastering studio in Berlin, and he'd been working on um, kind of helping master some some plates for friends of his. And he said that every new record you you make, you learn something new about getting that music onto wax, you know, in terms of kind of the frequencies, in terms of like how to handle the cutting machine, the lathe. And he said with digital, you just don't, don't learn very much. There's no learning curve. There's no process. And in part, it sounded like he was just kind of bored by the whole idea. Um, he liked to challenge. Um, part of it is his arguments also came down to sort of the, the ecosystem of vinyl, which I think is very interesting because it's like, if you're selling records, you are necessarily helping employ record stores. You're helping employ mastering engineers. You're helping employ people at the distribution company. It's it's a community. It's an ecosystem. If you're selling digital, a lot of that goes away. You know, it could be just you and the person at Beatport. That almost strikes me as an an argument for vinyl plus digital. I mean, why? I suppose that's that's one of the things that really strikes me about it is is why not do digital on top. You know? Why not also do digital? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for some people, there is uh, there's the fear that selling digital will cannibalize your vinyl sales, right? That right. Um, people, maybe like you and me, that <laughs> might be inclined to buy the vinyl if there were no other way to get it. If they knew they could buy the digital, well, we would just buy the digital. To me, I don't necessarily see the problem there. I think um, there are two fundamentally different markets. I mean, one of the things that really struck me here was sort of the numbers involved because most of these records these days, they're being limited to, and not limited out of some kind of strategy, but limited because this is what the market for them is, to maybe a 1,000 copies or 500 copies, or in many cases, it's 300 copies. Yeah. That's 300 copies that are going to go all around the world to Japan, to the United States, all across Europe, 300 people that are going to buy this record. And yet at the same time, it's clear 
that the audience for the music is much, much greater. Um, I spoke with uh, Fabian, I can't think of his last name, but he, he runs a label called Aniara out of Sweden. Um, he publishes groups like Genius of Time and Doris Berg. And he, for a time, he did both. He did both digital and vinyl. Um, but at a certain point, he felt like his his vinyl records were selling out and they were like going for astronomical prices on Discogs. And I think he he felt like that was kind of validating sort of the rarity, the scarcity was validating the quality of the music in a sense. It was making it, um, it was making everything about his label more desirable and he decided to to stop selling digital. Um, and right, so, so with, for instance, with Aniara, he was pressing in, I don't know what quantity he was pressing in, but let's say it was a thousand copies. Um, but then some of Genius of Times uh, or Doris Berg's records were getting something like 80,000 plays on YouTube. Yeah, so so some of his, his artists were getting 80,000 or 200,000 plays on YouTube for a record that's pressed in a quantity of a thousand, I mean, obviously there's a big mismatch there, right? Between the, the, the offer and the demand. To me, that's just fascinating. There's obviously more people who want access to the music. Why not give it to them, um, offer it to them digitally? Because part of the problem with, with vinyl is like, it's a very inefficient medium. Um, it's expensive to manufacture. It's ridiculously expensive to ship. Yeah. One of the reasons I, I can no longer mail order records from the United States from from labels directly because a 12-inch costs $20 to ship. So the, the 12-inch itself may only be like a $10 item, but then I'm paying 20 bucks on top of that just to get it sent to me here. Now, if you're buying from a mail order, they usually have preferential deals with UPS or things like that. But at the same time, it's ridiculously expensive. Um, you know, and, and in addition to that, there are huge backlogs with getting records pressed. Um, there's there's limited capacity for producing the stuff. I mean, one of the arguments, I think, um, that is put against uh, vinyl-only labels is it comes across as quite snobbish, quite elitist, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, no, we're not going to have our music on Spotify where everyone can hear it. We're only going to have it on vinyl where you've got to pay 15 euros um, and you've got to have a record player and you've got to go to a shop. What do you think about that accusation? I mean, I think that's kind of true, you know. I think, um, yeah, I think like limiting it to the people that, that can afford the price of the vinyl and and much of the co- much of the price of a vinyl is just like the cost of of kind of the shipping and the the materials itself i mean it sucks to admit that like the price or the value of one song is only let's say a dollar 50 or a euro 50 or 2 euros but that's kind of what we've settled on right i mean not just itunes but beatport hardwax all of these places um you know what a single song costs is around 150 two euros so when you're buying a 12 inch for 10 or 12 euros or sometimes more largely what you're paying for are all of the costs that go into kind of the manufacture and the shipping of that in addition to the to the shipping costs you're paying later so the the people that can afford that you know it's a it's a fairly small limited audience um i think it is kind of elitist not to offer that to to a broader a broader group of people. What what I find ironic is there are a lot of labels that are only manufacturing their music on vinyl, but then they put up their music on 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 SoundCloud, so you can listen to the whole thing 
which is nice. I mean, that's great yeah. to offer it for free uh, for people to listen to. But if you want to DJ it, then you have to kind of pony up for the 10 or 12 or 15 bucks for the record, which I, you know, I, I guess that's an argument. Is, is that fair? You know, I, I don't know. Then a lot of professional DJs are, are getting it free from the label anyway. So it's there, there's just a ton of contradictions um, in the in the vinyl marketplace right now. I mean, that was something else that I found interesting is like as a vinyl, as a buyer of records and an occasional DJ, most of the records I buy, I won't take out of my house again. Yeah. Because once I buy them within a month, they've become too valuable to risk, you know, like they're all so limited. You get them home within a month. They're going for like 40 pounds or $40 on, on, yeah. uh, on Discogs, even if they're not really worth that, even if they are like tons of Discogs flippers selling it at that price, they're never going to get that price. Still, you see that you're like, oh man, this new LeVon Vincent is worth like a lot of money. I really want to play it out, but I'm not going to take it out of the house. So like you encode it, you rip it, you put it on a USB stick. Um, and so so there's just all of these very sort of absurd scenarios that come up with with a marketplace. I talked to Mark Pignol, uh, uh, a Barcelona DJ, about that, and he said, you know, he buys tons of vinyl. Uh, John Talabot, when we interviewed yeah. him for the podcast, said that he was buying more records than he had in his whole life, but he never takes them out of the house. He buys the records, he encodes them, and he DJ, DJs off USB. One thing that interests me, I don't know if you asked this um, to the people you interviewed, if you run a vinyl-only label, how do you feel about people illegally downloading your stuff? Because fundamentally, if you're not, I, yeah, I think people should pay for music or, you know, listen to it on Spotify in a legal manner. But if it's not available, if you literally can't buy a download, for me, I, it's not necessarily justification, but I can certainly understand why you'd illegally download. How do they feel about that? I mean, I think there's a huge, um, I, I didn't ask anybody about this, but I, I, I suspect there is a range of opinions there. I know that LaVon Vincent, for instance, um, who, who does all of his music on vinyl and only on vinyl, he apparently has been in the habit for years of uploading his own releases to the torrents. Right. Um, and I remember a couple of years ago when he put out his debut album, which was like a four pack it was like four 12 inches in a bag um, no cover or anything and i forget how much it cost it was definitely 40 euros or up it wasn't cheap um but the day before he released that in shops he put the whole thing up in like 320 quality on on uh on a media fire link you know so like for him th there are kind of two audiences for it right there's right the collectors slash DJs, and I'm not even sure the DJs at this point, it's most DJs that care about vinyl. It's more sort of the collectors, you know, um, and, and then the, the, the people that just want access to the files. Um, uh, Kevin McHugh, who's ambivalent, I mean, his DJ name is ambivalent. Uh, he's also an ambivalent fellow. I interviewed him, and he had a really interesting point. His, his kind of theory of why to do digital, and he had begun doing a vinyl-only label with Delft, D-E-L, FT, uh, his newish label. He had begun that as a vinyl only thing, and then he decided to take it digital as well. His point was that if you don't do digital, somebody else will do it for you. Yeah, your material will get uploaded to YouTube, um, if not to you know Mediafire and MP3 blogs and Electro Buzz and all of these other places. So you might as well just take control of that process, and you know 
upload it to Bandcamp at the very least and, you know, cut out the middleman and, and get a couple dollars for it. I thought his quote was very strong. Uh, he said, vinyl has become a luxury product. It's a status object, a symbol of rebellion that has zero rebellion involved. It feels like rich guys who own Harleys, which was quite a quite a thing to say. Yeah, and I think he's right. You know, I mean, there was a, there was a piece, there was a piece in The Guardian, I think it was, last year about... I don't know where they got this figure um, about the number of people that buy vinyl and never listen to it. Yeah, just and put it on the wall. And yeah, yeah, and they're buying records and they're never listening to the records. And I mean, it's it's funny that there, that was a, like a highly aggregated story and there were a lot of people that were aghast <laughs> at that. But I kind of get it because, you know, I buy a lot of records that honestly, like, I don't, I don't really play them. You know, I buy them to have, I buy them as much as anything to sort of archive because like, like I said, I've lost hard drives. I've, you know, I've knocked my hard drive off my desk and lost my entire music collection. Um, Barring a flood or a fire, that's not going to happen with my records. So if there's something that I want to be sure that I'm going to have 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years down the line, I'm buying it on wax. But I'm not necessarily, like I may be getting the promo digitally or right. maybe I'll buy I mean there are times that I've bought the record and then I go and I illegally download <laughs> the rip you know because it's like screw it I've I've paid the money right. I feel fine about that yeah but I'm lazy I don't necessarily feel like encoding this record right now in five minutes I can have it downloaded in flat quality or whatever um, so yeah I mean it's kind of an absurd scenario when you think about it so what percentage of records do you buy um, that you just can't find online. I mean, are there ever any records you can't find anywhere? You can't find them on YouTube, SoundCloud, nothing. Or does everything kind of pop up somewhere? I think the vast, vast majority of things pop up somewhere. I can't, I really can't, I mean, I can't think of the last example of something recent on vinyl that I bought that that I haven't been able to find online in some form, be it, you know, YouTube or... YouTube, everything goes to YouTube eventually and pretty quickly, really. Because, I mean, I've I've long thought about doing a blog about this. Um, I'm probably not going to, so anyone can have the, the idea if they want, which is records that don't exist online. Because I've got records in my collection. And <laughs> it would be a very quiet blog, wouldn't it? There would be no, <laughs> there would be no examples. Well, but this is the point. I, I, sometimes, you know, you, you're, you're told that everything exists online, you know, and by large it's true. But sometimes I search for a record and it's like, no, it's not there. I can't find it. Like, I mean, you can maybe find a reference to it. Um, but you, you can't find it on YouTube. You can't find it on Spotify. You literally can't find it anywhere. And I find that very interesting. Um, I suppose there's, like, there probably certain kind of eras where that's true of like things that aren't particularly hip right now right like late 90s early 2000s i mean there was so much dance music coming out then you know and there's some stuff that nobody has just taken it upon themselves to encode yet right like just kind of random things but i'm not, I'm not talking sort of madly obscure things at some point i mean um one example that always comes to mind when i think about that because it's a record i love and I don't own, and a friend of mine does, and I can't find it anywhere, so I can't listen to it, is it's by Stacey Kidd, who's, you know, not not like the world's biggest artist, but he's not massively obscure either. It's called Guess I Never Told You, the F.U. mix. If, anyone, if anyone's got that, please, please upload it. And it's it. still not up on YouTube yet. Can't find it anywhere. Can't find it anywhere. And there's references to it online, um, but no, I can't find it. But one, one thing, when we talk about vinyl-only labels, one thing that always kind of gets me, and one, one thing that 
to be honest, slightly annoys me, is um, Pepe Braddock, because I know we always come back to Pepe Braddock. <laughs> Sometimes it seems all we're doing is circling back, trying to find Pepe Braddock. But I, I, I don't have a record player. I, I moved um, to Barcelona five years ago. My record player at the time was broken, and I didn't haven't got another one yet. I've got young children. I don't have my records here. I don't have a record player. I'm sorry. But Pepe Braddock doesn't release his music digitally. And I love Pepe Braddock. You know, I'm always going on about him. But it, he just doesn't release it digitally. And um, I find that quite frustrating. Because, you know, I would I would just love him. Just put it on iTunes, you know. I'll pay a euro. I'll pay, I'll pay five euro. I'll pay ten euros. Whatever you want, you know. And that's kind of the almost sticking point in vinyl-only labels for me. Because I don't obviously if you want to release music you can do it as you like it's your own music absolutely up to you but why would you deny people the opportunity to buy something if they want if they want yeah i totally agree with you there i mean i i the same you could say with perlon you know it's like you, you've built up this amazing catalog um of of quite important and influential music over the past nearly 20 years and you know i understand wanting to sort of reward the people that were with you from the beginning and that have, you know, invested in the vinyl in the first place. But, but, um, no, I'm with you, you know, it's like, let people, and the, and the thing with Pepe Braddock is like his stuff's on YouTube. Pretty much all of it is up there. All of the, you know, the big tracks, the B2s, it's all up there. And so people can listen to it, like let, give, you know, give people a shot at sort of owning it. I, th- I think one of the things that that's interesting to me is the way that, kind of what um, ownership of music means today in 2016, like at a time when a lot of people have decided they no longer want to own yeah. music or they just don't care because they're like, well, I've, you know, I got Spotify, I got Apple music. I maybe t- pay 10 bucks a month or maybe I don't, maybe I just like endure the ads, but they've, they, they don't have any local, any music on their local hard drive. They don't care about owning music. And I mean, me, as a DJ, as a collector, like that's very important to me. You know, it's like, I don't want to entrust it to the cloud. I don't want to entrust it to, um, some other company. I want to know that it's here for me to, to play what I want to do what I want with in uh, high fidelity and a, in a, in a good quality. Um, and so we're at this weird stage where like everything is available, but if you want to actually have possession of it in whatever whatever possession means in a digital sense, that's where you're limited. Well, in a weird way, possession for, means being, uh, for me means being able to play on my phone because, or, or, or even my iPod, you know? Because if you're sat at home, um, you can listen to anything. Well, not anything, but a lot, most things on the internet. But if you go out, and I love listening to music when I'm out walking around, you kind of need to own it. All right, I mean, you could, you could play it off, you know, via your mobile connection but that's not you know that's not really very practical so that for me is owning music in a way it's like okay i can hear it even if i want to go out even if i go to a different country i can i can just hear it when i want and the funny thing is you know you have something on vinyl and you can't do that maybe you know maybe you bought this this thing on vinyl if you haven't ripped it you're like oh i'm going out to the park oh i can't listen to it you know yeah that's a really good point i mean i come from a, a dj perspective and it's like for me if if for you owning it is like you can put it on your iPod and listen to it at the park for me owning it is being able to to play it out in reasonable fidelity at a right. club and i suppose that you know there are people for whom like that's not an issue like if they can rip it off youtube they'll play it you know but for me i still have that uh i don't know if it's below 320 yeah, you yeah. know oh i feel weird <laughs> about that and then like i know people that are like if it's below wave file wave quality they won't play it out so 
So what's the reaction been um, to your uh, piece? I saw a lot of people talking about it. A lot of people, um, I think, were quite surprised by it, actually, that these labels exist. You know, they're, they're, they're vinyl only. They're nothing to do with digital. Well, I was kind of hoping that that would happen. I mean, I was, especially being Pitchfork, I was hoping to reach an audience in part that, you know, maybe people that don't know about this. I mean, that's... I think this story wouldn't have worked in Resident Advisor because for RA's readership, it would have been, well, well like, yeah, duh, of course <laughs> this is how, how things work. But I wanted to to reach readers that maybe weren't aware, that don't go to Hard Wax every weekend and right. don't know about kind of like the, the white labels still exist in 2016. And not only do they still exist, but they're, you know, they have in some ways more sort of cultural cachet than ever. You know, that they're an aesthetic driver for the scene. I mean, I've for years I've been fascinated by the way that the rubber stamped white label is its own kind of category, you know, and people will buy them just because they come in a white paper sleeve and they have a rubber stamp on them. You see that and you're like, "Ooh, this is underground." I, yeah. I don't care what it sounds like. I got to get my hands on this. And and there's so much crap out like that, you know. And so I was I was interested in looking into that. Um and so yeah, I wanted to reach um kind of maybe a less specialist uh, readership. I, somebody commented on on Facebook, on the Pitchfork Facebook, something like, uh, duh, this article could have come out in 2008, which I thought was actually really not true because in 2008, there were a lot more vinyl-only labels. I mean, in 2008, the vinyl versus digital battle was really being fought still. And today, in 2016, that battle has been won and digital has won. I mean, everything yeah. is digital. In 2008, you still had DJs like Ellen Alien being like, I still play vinyl. I still play vinyl. I'll never change. And within like a year, like nobody was playing records anymore. You know, there was a real, yeah. really sudden shift in DJ culture um, that took down a lot of, or that just forced a lot of labels to adapt. Um, and, and I think a lot of labels stopped selling in any kind of quantity when that happened. And so, yeah, so I was interested in, in looking at these, you know, kind of stubborn like holdout labels so you can read that on pitchfork.com and i uh, thoroughly recommend it so it's time for our uh, weekly recommendations ben what do you have for us first this week uh, i'm going to start off with um audion gut man cometh matthew herbert's feel right dub um and what we have here is basically it strikes me as a coming together of two very different approaches to making music and to sort of techno, I guess, that um, almost shouldn't work but do. I mean, Audion, for me, is renowned for sort of really big, big sounding tunes. Not, I'm like, they're clever, but I'm, I'm not saying they're sort of, sort of dumb EDM or something, but they, they sound really big. A lot of his tunes sound really anthemic. You know, they've got that one really good hook. They sound fantastic over a loud sound system. And Matthew Herbert, certainly more recently, for me, he, he's more famed for like very intricate productions, very kind of jazz inspired, very lots of subtleties in the mix, that kind of thing. Um, and it's sort of, it's dance music, well, it's electronic music, but I'm not necessarily sure you would dance to it. You know, it's not kind of obvious, that kind of thing. Right, like Herbert almost refuses to sort of acknowledge the dance floor's needs, right? Whereas Audion is all about the dance floor's needs. Exactly, exactly. And it turns out that that combination works really well, or at least in this in this particular remix, because I love Audion. But honestly, the new album, I was not 
blown away by it. I mean, it was good, but I don't know, it just didn't quite have... Maybe I need to listen to it more. And the particular uh, tune that uh, Matthew Herbert's remixed, Gutman Cometh, again, was good. It had some kind of good ideas, but didn't quite work. And what, Ma- what Matthew Herbert's done is he's just weirded it up a bit but he's done it in a way that it still sounds like a really big tune you could uh, i could imagine this on a really big sound system you know in room one and people really dancing to it it's got this lovely looming bass noise which is like the massive sound and I, I don't know quite how it's made i mean it sounds like a sort of weird drone it could be um almost a vocal effect but it's like a really big noise and like the, the vocal is really cut up so it has like obvious hooky elements but they're ways changing and they're almost changing in unexpected ways um and if you listen there's loads of things going on in the mix and um it just sounds like really really good really subtle really clever big room techno which you don't get all that much of let's take a listen to uh matthew herbert's field right dub of of audion's gutman coming Philip, what's your first pick? Yeah, my first pick is a new one from Mouse on Mars, which totally fortuitously landed in my inbox uh, just a couple days ago. Weirdly, just in the last few days, I was thinking about Mouse on Mars. I was wondering what they were up to. I feel like they actually, I, I may have had a dream about them. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Unusual. <laughs> dreams. And um, yeah, so, so they have a new 10-inch coming out on a label called Infinite Grayscale, um, which is a label I wasn't familiar with before. They're out of Germany. And they do um, limited run sort of art editions. Um, this is this is one of those labels that you're like, yeah, I get why you do vinyl. I mean, I don't I don't know if they do digital as well, um, but it's uh, all of their stuff is single sided records, and the flip side is silk screened artwork. I don't really know how that works because I, I haven't gotten my hands on one. Uh, I plan to order a whole bunch of them, in fact. Um, but anyway, the Mouse on Mars one, it's, it's 13 minutes long. It's a 10-inch. And it was constructed in a really unusual way. Um, apparently, they used uh, trigger robots, whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> I love the um, idea. By, I don't know what they are, but by I love that. A, a guy named Moritz Simon um, from a project called Sonic Robots. Um, they also collaborated with Dodo and Kishi on percussion, who's a, a longtime collaborator of theirs, who also worked with Africane 808 recently. Um, Africane 808 and uh, Mouse on Mars share a studio, actually, which is something I, I learned know. when I interviewed uh, Africane 808 uh, in Berlin last winter. Um, and so, yeah, so so they, they apparently recorded this. They created, they used a feedback software called Smurf, <laughs> whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, and then they... They used live and studio improvisations, and then they kind of edited it all together into this 13-minute um, pulsing, shifting track. Uh, and it's it's Mouse on Mars at their most kind of beat-oriented. It's it's very dubby. It's very techno. Um, and yeah, for I think it's a it's great to hear them doing this kind of thing again. I mean, I love everything Mouse on Mars do. 
Um, but I especially love them when they get weird and rhythmic and textural. And this really moves far away from the more kind of pop experiments that they did for a while. And, um, there's, there's a sample that you can listen to online. That's, I think a five minute edit, but you really have to hear the full 13 minute thing because it just goes and goes and goes. And it's really, really cool. Where does it fit into their um, discography? I mean, they've been going for uh, 23 years. That's a really good question. Um, it's It's been a minute since I've listened to any of their albums. And I mean, this doesn't sound like anything else that they've done that I can think of. I mean, it's it's very rhythmically focused. It's it's texturally focused. Um, I don't know. I like It seems like a one-off for the moment. You know, I wouldn't say it's... It's returning to anything they've done before. It reminds me in some ways of their live shows of many years ago when it was just like the two of them with some machines and just kind of jamming. Except in this case, it's heavily kind of live percussive. Yeah. I mean, you can really hear Dodo and Kishi's work in there. Um, I mean, it's the sound of, of sticks and drums and, and, and human things. Um, but then with a lot of like weird feedback and static and white noise. I was thinking it sounds... Yeah, a lot more live, almost almost like a band playing, you know. The, yeah, the, yeah, the... actually, that that's true. I mean, it's kind of a maybe a kraut rock vibe to it, you know? A bit of kraut rock, sort of kraut rock, bit reggae, bit psychedelic, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is obviously a beautiful place to be. <laughs> exactly, the sweet spot. Cool, well, we'll, we'll play a little bit of Mouse and Mars' uh, Lister coming out soon on Infinite Grayscale. Infinite Grayscale, by the way, I recommend you check out their website. Um, like I said, I'd never heard of the label before, but they've got some really amazing things on it. Um, I am planning to order a record that they did with Peter Broderick, which is, uh, he, he got like 30 vocalists to do vocal improv, and then he... he edited it into this amazing beautiful drone piece it's just like it sounds kind of like a choir warming up like meshed with Lamonte Young and um you know things like that it's it's really really beautiful and all of their their whole catalog is I've been scanning through their website and it's all just like really weird left field stuff in these beautiful art editions Ben, your uh, your second recommendation this week uh, comes from a former resident of this very neighborhood. He used to live just right around the corner from you, uh, Christian Vogel. Yeah, you were telling me he likes to go to my favorite pizza place. That's right. I... Yeah, yeah. Um, I went to his birthday party one year at Pizza Paco, which is just around the corner from where we are right now. See, I never knew that, and even uh, I chose his music even without knowing. This you probably pizza. just felt the resonance <laughs> in the neighborhood. So he he's got a new album coming out. Um, which is called The Assistants, with a Z on the end. Um, and the track I've chosen from it is called Barefoot Agoneta. And the album as a whole is really varied. There's kind of not much of what you would call sort of dance music. There's um, Cubic Haze, track six, is is really quite electro. But apart from that, there's not a lot of sort of straightforward dance music beats. It's a bit 
autechery, there's quite a lot of ambient things. And in fact, um, the track I've chosen, Barefoot Agnita, is a beautifully ambient piece. It's kind of, it seems to just float around. You know, one of those things that doesn't do very much, but what it does, it does perfectly. And it has this really ghostly vocal sample and just hints of percussion. And it go, it sort of evolves a little bit over seven minutes, but not over, yeah, it's eight minutes. There we go. Um, but it, it evolves... And it's kind of relaxed, but at the same time, it kind of puts you on edge, like a little bit like a sort of horror soundtrack. Um, and one thing that really interested me um, was uh, the album is uh, was apparently made using the Kima programming platform. Um, and this strikes me as a very interesting way of making music, because recently um, I was reading an interview with Autica, and they were talking about using Max MSP. And I didn't know what Max MSP was, so I, I sort of started looking it up. Um, and essentially Max MSP and Kima are sort of ways of programming music. You know, it's closer, the way of actually making music is closer to, to how you would write a sort of um, computer program than, you know, to sitting down and jamming it out on an instrument. And I found that fascinating. I didn't I, I didn't even know that existed. You, I mean, I, uh, Max MSP, I know a little bit. I mean, you create sort of virtual machines, right, that sort right. of interact with each other. Um my understanding is not that different than than what people are doing in modular synthesis, except that it's with all within your your desktop, right? And and you're creating sort of scenarios of 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 kind of events that talk to each other musically, and that generates the music. I mean, you're setting up the conditions for the music, and that generates the music. You're not actually writing out every note or every beat. Exactly, and what that does, um, I, I, I got really interested about this, and I was speaking to a man called Martin Wood uh, Mitrovsky, who's a friend of a friend on, on, on Facebook, and he um, explained to me essentially what it was, and he said the real difference between making music this way is if you use like um, something like you know Logic or Reason or whatever, is generally there's like a linear approach and to time, and you've got tracks and that kind of thing. So you're, you're kind of stuck to that whereas if you use like a programming language you're not you've got like just a blank sheet basically and in this track barefoot agnita you, it sounds to me like you can feel that it feels like it's sort of floating it's not it's not stuck on a track it's not like you know uh, stuck yeah, yeah stuck to a metronome or anything like that it feels just like this piece of music that's kind of floating around that's in its own sort of bubble of logic it's quite beautiful yeah it's a field of possibility right it's Exactly. Yeah, it's a very expressive take on on that kind of mode of making music. Exactly, and I, and I I find it fascinating that that you know that a new way of making music can can lead to a whole new different ways of making sounds. Lead to things becoming far more abstract. And just as I was thinking about this, along comes this Christian Vogel album with this really beautiful sort of uh, centerpiece, which well, was made in this way. Let's take a listen to the to the Christian Vogel track. And your final choice is 
I fear, going to be a, a controversial one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't know if controversy is the right word. I mean, I, I have some mixed feelings about it myself, but it was something I wanted to talk about and something that I think is worth playing. So the act uh, is Blaze. The track is Lovely Day. We're in unimpeachable territory so far. Uh, the edit or remix comes from Bicep. Um, uh, I, Irish or Northern Irish? Northern Irish. Northern Irish duo. Um, do a great blog, um, you know, DJs, producers, uh, and they, they said they started out this, this back in 2014 as an edit, um, that they wanted to put in their essential mix. Um, and basically they took, uh, a previous remix of Blaze's Lovely Day. It was the 2020 vision acapella from Ralph Lawson and Carl Finlow, that was kind of an acapella with wonderful sort of swirly um, delay and reverb and pads and stuff. And basically they built and edited around that with drums and synths and bass. Um, and they say that they couldn't fit it into their essential mix, but they continued to work on it and they played it out and it got great feedback. And, um, and, and so they, they sent it on to blaze and they managed to get permission to, to license it for their own label. And yeah, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about this one because on the one hand, I don't think it's doing anything radically new with the tune. I mean, in part, it's like they're the best parts of it are kind of what Lawson and Finlow already did with it, right? I mean, or the, what Blaze did with well, it, you know, in getting what someone Blaze to did with it, but also the specifics of this remix, they're really utilizing the amazing, wonderful, swirly. Um, acapella bits and then just adding kind of new pads and drums and a bass line to it. Um, so so I have certain mixed feelings about it. But at the same time, I can't deny that like if I was out dancing and I heard this out, I would be super happy to hear it because this is one of those tunes. It's an evergreen. I mean, Lovely Day is never, ever, ever going to go out of style. No. And I think to be able to hear even a slightly different new tweak on it is is a plus. I would be I would be excited about that. I would be excited to hear, oh, this is a version I haven't heard before. This is something new. See, I, I think everything is up for remixing. I'm really not one of those people that thinks you shouldn't remix the classics. I think, yeah, go for it. Why not? You know, remix energy flash. Go for your life. Um, but um, in this particular case, um, there are already at least five brilliant no four brilliant i mean genuinely brilliant remixes of it and i kind of find it's it's got the basis covered which which what's your list beloved surge mix yeah one. yeah that's a big one. Oh, that yeah, that yeah. i think is i think i think even, that was my first that was my introduction to this song actually that was the first yeah. one that i bought i think it was released when classic released it possibly for the first time that was actually a one side one uh track one okay and the original was the second track i think um so yeah you're right you're right um that's my favorite um then we've got the original which is probably my second favorite then i'm gonna go for the peppy braddock meme remix mm -hmm. then the soleil remix then oh yeah yep <laughs> then the freaks radioactive dub Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, really, yeah. you see what I mean? We're, we're yeah. getting deep into, in, into. Don't forget Carl Craig. The Carl Craig is, is ridiculously good. The eight miles high dub. Also, um, there was, uh, somebody from compact, uh, put a, the, the T Tobias Thomas oh. and friends, was it? Um, 
we're looking it up on Discogs as we no, speak. No, we're not. This is uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, th- there was there was definitely a compact related mix. Oh, there was Low Soul, Low Soul uh, yeah, Friends yeah. Experiment, the Friends Experiment mix, which was Michael Meyer and Tobias Thomas. I mean, that was, if I remember correctly, the most kind of minimal of them all. But again, like it took, it did what it needed to do. It it stripped it down. It it preserved just enough of it but it took it to a new place right so th- th- this is why when i heard the bicep remix i mean honestly the bits i liked were the vocal you know yeah and the which bit- is the 2020 vision yeah and the original and honestly i quite like bicep um their tune just last year i thought was great great tune you know it's funny just left me kind of cold did it it didn't it just like it, it was fine but i didn't understand why it was so big like it didn't connect with me at all uh, I, I really liked it it wasn't it was one of those tracks that when I first heard it, I certainly didn't think, well, this is going to be, you know, the track of the year for a lot of people. But then I liked it. And then when it was track of the year, I kind of went back and listened to it more. And I was like, I, and you got yeah, it. I, I kind of understand, you know, like why, why that was a big track for people. So, you know, myself, um, I, 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 I do like them, but th- this remix, I, I, it just doesn't quite do it for me. So Lovely Day is a tune that had I had my head screwed on straight, I probably would have mentioned uh, in our last podcast when we had a a, a mailbag question about um, goosebump moments on the dance floor. Ben, do you remember the first time you ever heard out Lovely Day or do you have like a moment on the dance floor with Lovely Day that you you remember? I do. Um, I went to, I was living in Paris in 1997 to 1998. Um, and uh, Paris has a couple of really good radio stations, or at least it did back then. One is called Radio Nova, mm. which is um, sort of quite experimental music, play a lot of different things. And one is um, Radio FJ, which if you like house music, they play a load of it. And I can't remember which one used to play Lovely Day, um, the the beloved Surge mix. But maybe it was both. But anyway, they used to play it quite a lot. So I, I, I went out and, and I bought it and it was one of my absolute favourite tracks. And I was at the Rex Club and I think it was Eric Rugg DJing. And From he, Rug, Rub and Tug? No, no, Eric, Eric um, who used to be on Paper Records. Oh, okay. Um, and he uh, he played it out. And I remember just thinking, well, this is such a good track. You know, when, you know when you hear a record out? And you think, I'm so glad I've got this in my collection. You know, and you almost get that smug grin. It's like, oh, not only do I know what this is, I have it in my collection at home, you know, on vinyl. As well. I uh, I think I must have bought it. Uh, honestly, I don't know wh- like where I discovered it. I must have bought it at Tweakin Records in the Lower Haight uh, in San Francisco, um, you know, back in the late. But what year is that record anyway? 1998? Yeah, so I mean, it would have been like 99, 2000, something around there. Um, but I I definitely remember like the place I heard it out that made the most impact was on, uh, it was in Chile. It was Mute, the first Mutech Chile, I think, down there. So probably about 2003. Um, and the party had gone all night. And so it was, it was sometime in the morning. Uh, and it was on stage was Ricardo Villalobos, Luciano, Akufen, and Cassie. And they were playing Lovely Day. And if I remember correctly, they were playing an instrumental and Cassie was singing along. Or maybe she was just singing over the top. I don't really remember exactly how it worked out. But I just remember this moment of being like... A, and this the party was on a pier in the harbor. And so it was like 2,000 people... Literally, like the 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 turntables, the stage was 
underneath a crane, like a massive, like a shipping crane, like to pull like containers off ships um, on this pier, like reaching out in the harbor. And so you've got a couple thousand people dancing underneath this crane that they had hung up, um, kind of like fabric, like like sail cloth to make sort of, you know, tents from, from the sun. And yeah, and so it's like, you know, eight, nine, 10 in the morning and they're playing Lovely Day. And uh, yeah, it was just one of those moments where you were like, wow, this is this is what this is all about. It's one of those songs where I, I can imagine you'd think, oh, it's a lovely day. I, I can't I can't play that. Come on, that's far too cliche. Right, think, right. Actually, you it's know, too I'm obvious. And then everyone would just be like, oh, yeah, that was, that's just the perfect record. Sometimes you just got to go for it. Exactly. You know, sometimes um, that one record, which which I mean, it does what it says. It's a lovely day. You know, so play it i i think there's something about it's so innocent and so guileless like it'll never go out of style i'm not saying there aren't moments when it would be the wrong record to play um but but like it will survive you know like it's never gonna it's lasted this long it's never gonna get played out i would put it within my top 10 favorite house tunes ever without a shadow oh yeah easily easily i don't know which version i put in but you know well probably beloved surge mix but then you know well, um, I mean, I think we're we're wrapping it up here, so maybe we should uh, go out on a little bit of um, the Beloved Surge mix. Lent. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Line Noise. Uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you.